Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would go deep into our hearts, that we would absorb what you're saying to us, and that we would draw closer to you through it. So please have your way with us, speak to us, and uh, be glorified in our midst right now. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we, we sort of bridge into a new section of the New Testament. So, you know, we started the year in Genesis. We worked our way through the, what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, or the, the words of Moses. Then we made our way through the, the history of the Jewish people, and then the, the poetry and the prophecy. And then we came to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're the, the narrative of Jesus Christ and his time here on earth. They're not the story. It's not a fictitious account. They're the narrative. They're a historical, accurately, uh, really uh, verifiable truths about Jesus Christ's time on earth. And then we have the book of Acts, which gives us the history of the church up until the time when that book ends, which is a couple decades after uh, the life and, and ministry of Jesus Christ. And tonight we find ourselves in the book of Romans. And so uh, we're going to be in basically what's called the epistles, really up until we get to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament. And so the epistles are written uh, either to specific churches or to specific people who the author would have known or been aware of. And, but specifically in context, they are written to New Testament believers who believe in Jesus Christ. And they're books that are saying, hey, here's where your life is at. And here's how uh, the truth of who God is should be impacting it. And so as believers, this portion of scripture should be incredibly relevant to us. The whole scripture is, is applicable. The whole scripture is relevant. But this is a, a portion of scripture that was specifically written to believers in Jesus Christ. So the whole Bible is for us. But this part on top of that is actually to us. And so, uh, so it's very much you know, worth our while to always be just coming back to these letters. So, you know, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the books of Thessalonians, Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, the book of Hebrews and James and John's epistles. They are all incredibly rich with just straightforward application of here's the Christian life. Here's what it means. Here's who Jesus Christ is. Here's who God the Father is. Here's who God the Holy Spirit is. Here's how it should impact your life and here's what the ripple effect should be. And so if you're ever like at a point of, I just don't know where life is supposed to be or where I'm supposed to be at, well, just start there. What is, what is God written down for you in the scriptures specifically to you? Start there. So tonight we're going to find ourselves in the book of Romans. Romans is a very distinct book out of all of these letters. Uh, it's written by the apostle Paul, but all of Paul's other letters are either written to a church that he had pastored or somebody that he knew personally. And Romans is not. Romans is written to a church that Paul did not start and that he really didn't know the, a specific person there. He, knew, he knows a couple of people that he'll reference toward the end of the book. But really, Paul isn't having to write this letter to fix stuff, okay? In uh, Corinthians, Paul has to fix all kinds of stuff. He has to say, guys, getting drunk in the middle of taking communion is a bad idea, right? And uh, we need to address this. Uh, shacking up with your mother-in-law is a bad idea. We need to address this. He's going to tell the Galatians, you guys are departing from the gospel. We need to address this. But Romans, Paul doesn't have a specific issue that he needs to fix. And so he says, so basically what he's going to do is like, I want to bless this church with, with a letter. And so, you know what? I'm just going to write about the gospel. 
I'm just going to spend a little bit of time and unpack what exactly is the gospel. And so Romans, really, it's almost like Paul's doctoral thesis on Christianity and on what is the gospel, what is the good news, what is it exactly that Christians mean when they use phrases like the gospel or justification or grace or salvation. What, are, what do all these words mean? And so Paul just, he's, he's just like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to write him a letter and just enjoy unpacking the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, uh, so with that, Romans is just like, just, it's a powerhouse of theology, it's a powerhouse of application, okay? Now, uh, if you're looking to break down the book of Romans, somebody smarter than me figured out that this book breaks down very neatly into roughly four sections. And if it's Paul's treaty on, treatise on theology, you can think of it like a, kind of a heavenly city with four buildings. And each section breaks into one of these buildings. So the first building is a courthouse. The next building is a power plant. The next building is a synagogue, and the next building is a church. And we'll unpack those each as we go. But the first, uh, really first five chapters, you can picture in your mind a courthouse. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, okay, let's understand what the verdict is on your life. And so chapter one, he opens up and tells us that he's writing it. And what he's going to do in chapters one and two is he's going to say, here's what you need to understand. There's two kinds of people in the world. And they both need the Lord. There's two kinds of people. Let's start with the first kind. And that's the unrighteous person. And so he describes the unrighteous person. And he says the wrath of God is going to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. Uh, against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Chapter 1 verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. He says the judgment of God is going to come against unrighteousness. Why? Because the things that can be known about God are self-evident. No person has, a, has the right to live their life apart from God and then die and say, well, God never showed up. God never showed himself for me. Paul's saying, no, no, no. The truth about God, the, the general revelation, any human being can look at this life, if they're honest, and say, there's a God who made this whole place. And therefore, there's a God who made me, and therefore I have a responsibility to know more about him. And so Paul says, these guys are just, they're rejecting it. So they have no excuse. There are unrighteous people who just willfully say, nope, I refuse to acknowledge that. And God says, I'm sorry, I have revealed it beyond the point of excuse. I have revealed divine creation. I have revealed order in the universe. I have revealed design in everything to the point that you cannot claim to not have recognized me. That is an invalid argument in, in the eyes of God. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, that as part of that, Though they knew God, they didn't give honor to God, and so they degrade. And that's the reality. You, you will always become like what you worship. And when we refuse to worship God, we will worship something less than God. And because of our own self-arrogance, we usually wind up worshiping either ourselves or something even less than ourselves. And so what happens is we actually degrade. We, we live life less fully apart from God. And he says... And so there's this point at which God gave them over to degrading passions. People reject God to a point that God says, if you refuse to accept me, then you do not have to accept me. 
uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, at the end of time, there's only going to be two kinds of people. There's going to be those who said to God, your will be done, and those to whom God finally says, your will be done. If you say, God, I want nothing to do with you, there will come a point in time in which God says, fine, you don't have anything to do with me. And so he then describes some of the sins that uh, become evident as part of this, when people willfully deny the Lord. And one of the specific sins, we're going to go through the list, but uh, one of the specific sins that he mentions is homosexuality and lesbianism. And, you know, it's awkward and everybody squirms in their seat, but here's the deal. We go through the entire Bible in this church, and we will address every issue that the Bible brings up. And so we come to a passage like this, and we need to address it. So, especially in a culture that's as confused as ours, here's what we need to understand as Christians. Number one, homosexuality and, and all other forms of sexual deviance or whatever else is a sin in the eyes of God. God looks at that and he says, that is a sin. And it's, it's critical that we understand that and we will not be able to move forward in truth with truth in life if we can't appreciate that. And it's also important though, I don't know where everybody else, everybody in the room is at on this issue, but I know where most people in the room are at. And most people in the room would say, well, yeah, that's right. And so to those who would say that, then we need to back up and say, okay, wait a second. Homosexuality is a sin in the eyes of God. But homosexuality is not some sort of supreme ultra-level sin. Okay? And this is really important, especially people who claim to be Christians who then will declare that homosexuality is a sin. There's this temptation to say, you know, there's sins, and then there's like bad sins like, you know, being an alcoholic or, or being adulterous, and then there's homosexuality. And we kind of, you know, we look down at it as, well, that's the top one. And that is not. Homosexuality is a sin. Absolutely. But as Christians, we need to understand what kind of sin is it? It's not some sort of supreme sin. In his, the book of Ezekiel, in chapter 16, the Lord is talking uh, to the nation of Sodom, which is, sort of becomes the, the picture throughout all of Scripture for sexual immorality. And he says, you know, you know what your problem was? Uh, chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, kind of means just the city, had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but they did not help the poor or needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations. Do you, know, do you know what the sin of homosexuality is? It's the sin of pride. It's the sin of saying, God, I'm sorry, but you made a mistake when you made my body, or you made a mistake when you made my desires, and therefore I believe that I can comprehend the situation better than you. And so we have to understand that because every single one of us is prideful. Every one of us has an elevated opinion of ourselves. And so we cannot stand up and say homosexuality has no consequences. We can also not stand up and say it's some sort of supreme sin, right? Every single one of us is as guilty in the eyes of God as any homosexual because we are prideful. And so and we just need to just stop there whenever we come to a passage like that, especially a, an issue that is so alive in our culture right now. We've got to address that, okay? So that's where, that's where we paused right there. But then, uh, verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, 
being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul says there's a point, there's a point in time in which a person who refuses to acknowledge God God will say, you know what, you can, I'm not going to force you to do what you want to do. And here's the ripple effect of that. Here's what people become. Here's what you wind up doing when you walk away from the Lord. Now, remember I said, there's two kind, Paul's going to make this point that there's two kinds of people. There's the unrighteous. Okay, and we could look at this list and say, yeah, that's, that's unrighteousness, right? Uh, murderers, wicked, greed, evil, full of envy and strife and deceit and malice. Well, do we all agree that that's, that's bad? Good. If you agreed, then go to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Paul says, if you read that list and thought, boy, those people are bad, then by definition you just condemned yourself. Because there's two kinds of people in the world. There's unrighteous and there's self-righteous. And the self and the unrighteous people, it's, it's frankly kind of straightforward, Right? This man killed this man for no good reason. Good or bad, that's bad, right? But what do we do when we're self-righteous? Well, you know, <clears throat> I wouldn't kill him physically, but I would certainly have no qualms about, you know, giving him a, a rough go. Or if you're a supervisor, you know, making his life just a little bit unnecessarily miserable or whatever else. So Paul's saying, look, here's the deal. There are unrighteous people in the world, but it's not your place to judge them. Which, what's your, what do you, it's your place to do. It's your place to recognize if you're bothered by unrighteousness, you're self-righteous. You're, you're imposing a moral code on people and the second that you impose a moral code, you're assuming responsibility to live by that moral code. So once I tell you something is wrong, all of a sudden I am subject to those same rules, to the same God who gave you those rules. And so if I'm gonna stand and tell you you're wrong, then I have got to understand that I am also wrong. If you're a sinner and I'm gonna make that claim, then I'm actually proving that I'm a sinner. And so he says, uh, and, and we know in verse 2 that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. He's talking about the, the evil things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? He's saying their problem is that they're walking in wickedness. Your problem is that you're not walking in the goodness. You're not walking according to what God's called. And in the eyes of God, those are both problems. Those are both sin. Sin is not just doing bad. Sin is also not doing good. So if you are self-righteous and you have failed in one way to fully appreciate the kindness and the tolerance and the patience and the riches of God, you've sinned. You've sinned. And so then he goes on in chapter 3 and he's, he's describing basically we're all in this condition. We are all, we are all sinners. We have all broken the law. What then? Are we better than they? In chapter 3, verse 9, not at all. For we've charged that the Jews and the Greeks are all under sin. And by Jews and Greeks, he's basically saying people who have tried to live by the Old Testament law and people who have never cared about the Old Testament law. So people who have been self-righteous because they kept all the rules and people who never cared about the rules, is one, is one better than the other? No. 
Both are all under sin. As it's written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Paul quotes from Psalms and he says, you got to understand, there is not one good person on the face of the earth. Every single person in the eyes of God is a sinner. Every single person. And then, uh, so, so what do you do with that? Right? Like that's, that's what, comforting? I mean, that, no, that's depressing as all get out. God has set a standard and every single person ever exists has failed. Yay. You know, we're all, we're all like, you know, we're all in this together. That is not a comforting thought because, well, if I'm self-righteous, that means I'm in it with you and, oh my gosh, you're way worse than I am. So, verse 21, we get a shift. But now, apart from the law, apart from the Old Testament law, apart from this idea of, well, if I do the right thing long enough, I can earn righteousness. Apart from that, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So the righteousness is separate from the law. There's a righteousness that's being manifested by God that is not found in the Old Testament law. It's not found in keeping it, but it is found in studying it. The Old Testament law is pointing to it. And there's no distinction now between the Jews and the Greeks and whoever else. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There is not one good person on earth, for all have sinned and fallen short. But guess what? That same all can now be justified as a gift by the grace of God through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What is the redemption which is in Christ Jesus? It is that Jesus Christ came to earth as a man who was fully God and fully man, lived an absolutely perfect, sinless life, and died on a cross to pay the price. His blood was the, the payment. He took the death penalty for everything that every single person has ever done or ever will do. And so now, all have sinned, but guess what? All have access to that grace. All have access to that gift of God. So, you understand what he's saying? This is the courthouse. Remember, we're talking about that there's four buildings. We're in the courthouse. What's the verdict? Guilty, right? You and I deserve hell. We deserve the judgment and the wrath of God for what we've done in our lives. But what's the verdict? The verdict is not that God, you know, brushes it under the rug. The verdict is that a perfect substitute came in and took our place and paid the entire price Jesus Christ, by living a perfect life, was able to be a perfect and total substitute for every sin that we've ever committed. And so it is not that God looks at us and says, oh, it's no big deal. It was a big deal in a way that nobody will ever understand somehow God was willing to sacrifice God for the sake of restoration of sinful humanity. I have no idea how that works, and nobody really does. But we believe it because he said it, okay? It was a big deal. God does not take our sin lightly. He died. God died for man. Think about what those words mean. Okay? They're both, God and man are both three-letter words. They're not the same thing. God died for man. And now that gift is available for every single one of us. The gift is, the gift is beyond the law. 
So when Paul's talking about the gospel here, he's not talking about the set of rules and the set of regulations and the set of, well, if you, you, know, if you do the right thing and if you say the right prayers and eat the right foods, you can be righteous. He's saying, no, that failed. You know, you, there is no way for a sinful human being to be righteous through keeping laws. The only way for a sinful human being to be righteous is if God steps in and makes you righteous. And so he said, guess what? God stepped in and made you righteous. So we're in the courthouse. What's the verdict? We are purified. We are justified by God. Justified is a big fancy word. It means basically just as if I'd never done it. It's not that God ignores it. It's that it's gone in the eyes of God. Everything we have ever done against God, every good that we didn't do and every bad that we did do is now wiped out. It's not like, and not like whited out, you know, like you could skim through a redacted document and say like, boy, there would have been a bunch of juice here if we could read it. No, no, no. It's just gone. In the eyes of God, it is gone. So in chapter four, Paul's going to make this point that actually to, if you're a person who grew up believing in Judaism or you grew up believing in the Old Testament, he's saying, listen, what we're talking about with the gospel here is not some sort of new thing. We're not just replacing everything that we've believed for thousands of years. No, we're actually going back before. This is the fulfillment of the law. And so we have justification. You are made pure by God through, from before the law because Abraham, the father of Judaism, was counted righteous by God back in the book of Genesis. Okay, the law of God is not given until Exodus and Leviticus, which are the next two books. So Paul says, listen, in the eyes of God, what does it say? It says in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was made righteous not by keeping laws, but by what? Believing in God. So do you want to be made righteous? Do you want to know that you're, all the stains and all the sins of your life are wiped out? What do you have to do? You have to believe God. And then let him credit his righteousness to your account. That's what you got to do. Man, that's a lot of work, isn't it? Just to say, okay, I, will, I believe and I accept the righteousness of God. And then chapter 5, he kind of goes on from there. And he says, uh, therefore, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. He says, okay, We've been justified by faith. By believing in God, we've been cleansed, we've been purified, and now we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. Like, we're stepping into something that we can't even really fathom. But we're believing it, okay? And, and then he says, he basically spends chapter 5 kind of discussing that contrast of obeying the laws versus believing the Lord by faith. And he says, in to the end of that chapter, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness, through eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, okay, here's the deal. The point of the law is not to make you righteous because nobody is good enough to become righteous by keeping the law perfectly. It's impossible. So what's the point of the law? Because God gave the law in the Old Testament. What's the point? The point is to demonstrate to us how incompetent we are. The law shows us our unrighteousness. If you want to know if you're righteous or not, you know, if I want to know if I'm speeding, right, I don't know 
unless I come up to a speed limit sign. Do you know there's one road in Jefferson County that does not have a speed limit sign? Now, it's right in the middle of town, so it's not like you can just go crazy. But there is a road in town that doesn't have a speed limit sign, or didn't for a couple years. That's the only road in town where I could just honestly say, sir, I, officer, I have no idea if I'm breaking the law or not. But as soon as you put a 4-0 or a 3-0 or a 1-5 or whatever, I was in Texas lately and they had an 8-0. And I was like, this is my state. Um, but as soon as you put that sign there, I know if I'm keeping the law or breaking the law. And Paul is saying it's the same thing with the law of God. The law makes you come face to face with, am I breaking the law of God or keeping the law? And the answer is you're breaking it. Okay? But, here's what he says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded. The more aware I am of my sin, then the bigger impact, the grace of God, the idea that God would give me a free gift, the, the more massive that gift is in my heart. Okay? And actually, if, if you were to kind of translate this literally from the, from the Greek, it would say, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Paul just gets, he gets fired up and he's like, you know what? There was sin. The law demonstrated your sin. And so you know what? The grace of God just came in and overpowered your sin. The grace of God came and, you know, really in, a, and in he's kind of getting a little bit, he's kind of saying, okay, look, the greater your sin, the greater your appreciation for the grace of God. And so you could hear that and say, now, wait a second. So, the more I sinned, the more aware I am of God's grace, right? Or the more aware I am of my need for God's grace, right? Okay. And so, in a sense, the more I sinned, the, the greater glory God gets when he extends his grace, right? Like, there's a, there's a bigger contrast there, okay? So then, couldn't you say, well, then why not, like, keep sinning so that we can keep getting more of God's grace? And Paul, as he's writing Romans, is anticipating <clears throat> that you might have that question, right? If where sin abounds, grace superabounds, then why don't we just all just start sinning? It would just be like giving God an opportunity to, to spread his grace. Well, what happens in chapter 6, verse 1? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. I think it's the, the King James Version says, perish the thought. So if your thought is, hey, let's keep sinning so that we can have more grace from God, Paul says, okay, take that thought and murder it. Okay, that thought dies. Because, no, that's not what we're saying. And now we're in chapter 6, and chapter 6, 7, and 8 are going to be what's known, are what you could call, in a sense, a power plant. They're going to talk about the power to live the Christian life. And what does it look like to live the Christian life? So chapters 1 through 5 are the gospel. You're a sinner. God stepped in to save you, and you can be justified by faith through believing in Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, 7, 8 are going to talk about, okay, so what do we do now? Right? Because, okay, chapter 6, verse 1, he just told us, you can't just, like, keep sinning to try and get more grace points. So, perish the thought. So, okay, well, well, well what? What do you do? Well, do you not know, in verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so the Christian tradition of baptism is, in essence, saying, in the same way that Jesus Christ died and went in the grave and came up again, resurrected, as a symbol of the life that God breathed back into him that we can have. In that same way, we are dipped in water, 
as a symbol of our sinfulness dying. And then we're brought back up out of the water as a symbol of in the same way that the Spirit of God raised Jesus Christ to life, I want the Spirit of God to raise me to spiritual life. So he's saying, you've been baptized into death. And so your old sinfulness is dead. The sinfulness that used to reign in your heart is dead. If you've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've accepted the good news, if you've accepted chapters 1 through 5 of Romans, then guess what? Your old nature is dead. And so, but he goes on in, chapter, in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He says, here's the deal. You don't have to sin anymore. That's the whole point, is that sinful nature died. So guess what? You don't have to walk in sin anymore. So don't let sin be the boss of you. You tell sin to take a hike. Don't let sin tell you to take a hike. All right? Don't present your body as a member and don't present the member of your body to sin as an instrument of righteousness. Don't tell sin, hey, here's my body. Do with it whatever you want. Don't just be like, hey, you know what? Sin came calling and I came answering. No, 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 no. He's saying, don't do that. Present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. If you were baptized, if you accepted the gospel and you said, look, Lord, I want to be raised to life, then keep living with that mindset of, hey, God, I want to be raised to life. Verse 15 what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under the grace? But under grace? May it never be. Paul says, okay, just in case you missed it. Should we sin because that's where the grace of God is found? No. Do you not know, verse 16, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Okay. What's he saying? He said, don't you know that when you present yourself as a slave to someone, you're a slave. When you present yourself, uh, you know, when you become a citizen of a country, you become a citizen of that country, right? That, that's sort of, he's kind of making this like, he's almost making this very obvious point, all right? When you become a citizen, you become a citizen. When you become a slave, you're a slave to whoever you're a slave to. So if you're presenting your body to sin, then what are you doing? You're letting yourself become a slave to sin. And he's saying, you don't have to do that. Become a slave to righteousness. And he, and he even goes on and says, okay, if the slave thing trips you up, I'm, he's like, I'm speaking a metaphor. <clears throat> but he's saying, here's the deal. Whatever you're going to, you're going to be a slave of something. And, and we forget sometimes as human beings that we are not the highest living thing, right? The Lord gave us dominion over this earth. And so we are the highest physical object, that's great. But there are things and powers that are way bigger than us, okay? There's a God in heaven. There's also an adversary who's not, you know, who, who's out for our souls. Somebody is, is over us. We are not running the ship here. And so you are going to decide, are you going to present your body as a slave to God or as a slave to sin? And if you present your body as a slave to God, you're going to find yourself walking in all kinds of freedom and joy and life. If you present your body as a slave to sin, it brings death. So he's saying, okay, we cannot walk 
in sin. And he's not saying, if you walk in, he's not saying we don't walk in sin to be saved. He's not saying we do good things so that God will love us. He's saying because God has already loved us, because we are already saved, now we get to respond to that. We are not saved because we do good things. We get to do good things because we have been saved. And so then verse chapter 7, Paul runs into the same dilemma that every single one of us will run into sooner or later. And that is this. There's this point in which you say, okay, I understand the gospel. Jesus Christ came to earth. He died for my sins. I believe it by faith. And so I understand that God has cleansed me from my sins. I also believe that I shouldn't willfully keep on walking in sin. And then you come to Romans chapter 7 where Paul says, yeah, but here's the problem. I still got to live with myself, right? The problem is that I still want to sin. And he says in verse 14, chapter 7, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For, uh, for what I'm doing, I don't understand, but I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had a moment where you thought about doing something and you said, I know that this is a sin. I know that if I do this, it will drive a wedge in my relationship with God. I know that if I do this, it will bring me no lasting joy or even pleasure. And I know that as soon as I'm done doing this, I'm going to feel convicted. I'm going to feel guilty. I'm going to feel shame and, and embarrassment and humiliation. And number five, I'm just going to do it anyways. You ever done that? I have. It's miserable, right? But have you ever, you come to that crossroads of like, I know what the right thing is to do and I'm not doing it. I know what the wrong thing is to do and I'm doing it. And I'm at this like impasse of I am trying and trying and trying, but I just keep hitting a brick wall, right? You just keep coming up against, you're a loser. You keep coming up against, you're a sinner. And so uh, he goes, for I know in verse 18 that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. I want to do the right thing. Yeah, that's easy. Doing the right thing is the hard part. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. And so he kind of just goes on and he reiterates it a few more times. And then he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? This is a miserable existence to be in. If you're a Christian and you believe the gospel, and you believe that you're supposed to walk in righteousness, and you keep stumbling in sin. That's a miserable existence. Because you recognize the goodness of who God is, and you recognize that you keep just you're spitting in his face. And you know that you shouldn't, but it's like you have no power to do anything about it. So he says, who's going to deliver me? Who's going to set me free from the body of this death? Because back in uh, chapter 5, I think, he says, basically, understand, you're purified by God but you're still living in a physical body that's going to bear the curses of sin. So we're saved, but we're not perfect. And that's, that's a frustrating point to be. So who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 7, verse 25. Well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul says, who's going to deliver me? Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I thank God for him. And I'm still wrestling with this back and forth sometimes. And then we shift to chapter 8. Chapter 8 is really kind of the, the summary of this whole power plant idea. 
This is where we figure out, okay, so we know what we're supposed to do. How do you do it? And that's where we get to chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What sets you free? The law of the spirit of life. And that's not, that's not a law, but he's talking about the Holy Spirit. What sets you free from living in bondage to sin? That's the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 8, we talked, about, we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit last week because we were in the book of Acts. Romans chapter 8 uses the word spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, more times than the entire book of Acts. When people talk about, the book, talk about like what's a, a Holy Spirit book of the Bible, they talk about Acts. But Romans chapter 8, the chapter on how do you live life? How do you get the power to do the right thing? Because you don't have it in yourself. And every one of us who has tried to do good on a regular basis knows that firsthand. You don't have the power in yourself. So what do you do? You let the Holy Spirit empower you. And so now he's going to describe in chapter 8 the relationship that the Holy Spirit has with us. And so the Holy Spirit sets you free from the law of sin and death. And we're, not, we're just going to hit the highlights uh, because we're out of time. Verse 9, however... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the, indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. If Christ is in you, here it is, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So if Christ is in you, if, if you've received the gospel, then here's the deal. Yeah, your, your physical body is still bearing the effects of sin. We're, we're still, you know, your engine is putting on mileage. It's still wearing down, and sooner or later it's going to either burn out or rust out. It's just, yeah, it's going to happen. But your spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He says, the Holy Spirit saved your soul. And he's, he's raising your soul to life. But also on top of that, you know what the Holy Spirit's doing? He's going to give life to your mortal bodies. Your mortal bodies are still going to die. But you can have a life. You can have a power. You can have an ability to act according to the law of God by the Spirit of God raising you to life. You can have victory over the sin in your life, over the struggles, over the things you should do but aren't or the things you shouldn't do but are. You can have victory in all of those areas by what? By the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And then he goes on a little bit more. Um, verse 14, he says, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you haven't received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul says, here's the deal. The Spirit has adopted you into the family of God. You have full legal standing in God's eyes. You have all the riches that come from being adopted into the family. There is no barrier. There is no distinction. You are a child of God by the Spirit of God. In verse 26, he says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, which is handy because we all have weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So understand, 
in, in 26 verses, what Paul just unpacked. Verses 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit sets us free. And 9 like through 11, he says the Holy Spirit raises us to life. The Holy Spirit equips us. The Holy Spirit brings us into adoption with God. And then, as if that wasn't enough, the Holy Spirit is actively praying for you. Think about that for a second. God the Holy Spirit is talking to God the Father on your behalf. God is praying for you. God is on your side. And we can get this idea that God is against us sometimes. Or that God is just stiff. Right? We have this idea that God is this old guy. No offense to old guys in the room. But being an old guy is not like the greatest stereotype in the world. Okay? There's a stereotype of old guys, which is that they're usually stiff. And the two things they do is complain about which parts of their body hurt and complain about young people and their attitudes. And, and I'm not saying it's a fair stereotype, but it does happen sometimes. Um, God is not an old guy. God is on your side. God is, God is full of life and vibrancy, and he wants to pass it to you. So that's where power comes, okay? So there's a courthouse. Here's the verdict is you're guilty, but the verdict is actually God is willing to justify you through Jesus Christ. Here's the power plan. You are called now because you're saved, not to be saved. You are called because you're saved to live in righteousness, and you're only going to be able to do that by the Spirit of God. Now we're going to shift to a synagogue, if, if the building metaphor helps. If the building metaphor doesn't help, just chuck it out. But if it helps, it helps. So it's like a synagogue. And why? Because Paul, some people think Paul is just rabbit trailing here. But I don't want to think that's the case. What Paul's going to do is he's going to say, okay, we're absorbing, we're absorbing all these promises about God. And we're talking about how, you know, the free gift of salvation, the free gift of God's grace is better than the law. It's better than trying to be righteous on our own. And so we've, you know, we've now reached a point of fulfillment in the Old Testament, where it's not that we now have to live our lives according to everything in the Old Testament, but we now look at the fullness of the Old Testament and the New Testament and say, how do they connect together? How do we understand the character of Jesus Christ? How is the Old Testament pointing toward Jesus Christ? But with that, there's a question that needs to be raised or that, that kind of just comes up naturally and that is, okay, so wait a second. So we're now not going to be saved by the Old Testament law, right? Right. So that means that Judaism isn't a viable way to come to the Lord, right? Yeah, pretty much. So then does that mean that God basically has just, what, what, what's God done with the Jewish people at that point? If Judaism isn't a valid way to come to the Lord, then what do we do with that? And does that mean that Maybe God has just taken all the promises that he gave to the Jewish people and, and stuck them now on the account of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Is that what it means? Or does that, is it like, have we replaced the Jewish people? Because there's a lot of very specific promises in the Old Testament to the Jewish people. And if Christianity has replaced Judaism, if Christianity has just made all that completely worthless, then that kind of leaves us with some open questions. One of which is, uh, so if God could replace the Jewish people with the church, then what's to stop God from replacing us with something else? So if, if, if there's that train of thought like, well, maybe God just took all the promises to Israel and applied them to the church, then there's never any security in that for anybody who's part of the church because, well, maybe he'll do it again. And so <clears throat> sometimes people get super abstract on what does Paul think about the Jewish people. But chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? 
May it never be. Certainly not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, has God moved on from the Jewish people? No. Case in point, me. Right? Paul says, I'm a Jewish person. God hasn't moved on from the Jewish people. A Jewish man is writing to you right now and, and passing on the truths of the gospel. No, God has not moved on from the Jewish people. But understand that now for all of us, for Jewish people and non-Jewish people, the way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. And so if you kick back, 9, 10, and 11 really do very well, read together as a chunk. And to keep that whole concept in mind. And don't, and people, there's a couple verses that people want to pull out and do all kinds of funny stuff with, but if you really want to understand what Paul's saying, read chapters 9, 10, 11, back to back. It'll take you like less than 10 minutes. But in chapter 10, verse 5, just a quick little summary of where are we at with the Jewish people and how should the church respond to the Jewish people. Uh, what did I say? Chapter 10, there we go, verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. So person who can keep the law perfectly is going to live, but nobody can. But, verse 6, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an absolute statement. That's an absolute statement from God. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, or not you'll be in the upper 20%, or you'll be one of the 144,000, or whatever else. No, no, no. You will be saved. Okay? And that applies to Jewish people, that applies to non-Jewish people. And, and we understand that specifically in this paragraph, in the context of these chapters. He's saying, okay, here's the deal. The Old Testament is talking about this. So, for with the heart, verse 10, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, do the Jewish people have salvation? Well, Every Jewish person who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord has salvation. Do the Gentile people have salvation? Every single Gentile person who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord has salvation. And so the gospel message, the grace of God, by fulfilling the Old Testament, is now open to everyone, to Jewish people, to Gentile people, to men and women. It doesn't matter your education or your income level or your background. The gospel of Jesus Christ is available to you. Okay, and so we got to understand that. Chapters 9, 10, 11, Paul says, okay, here's what you got to know. As we're moving through what is the gospel, don't forget that God has not forgotten the Jewish people. And therefore, if he's going to keep his promises to the Jewish people, he will also keep his promises to you. And so this should bring us a sense of security. Chapter 12 through 16, and we're getting close to wrapping up. Chapter 12 through 16, think of it as a church. Paul has now given us the gospel. He's given us an understanding of the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given us an understanding of how that relates to the Jewish people. And now, okay, how should this impact your daily life? Right? So, so what, what should, 
What should just like, let's get, you know, nuts and bolts Christianity. Brass tacks Christianity. Okay, this is, Paul always, almost, I think always, gives a rubber meets the road chunk in his epistles. All right, so chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, because of the gospel. Therefore, because you have been justified by faith. Therefore, because the Spirit of God is raising you to life and equipping you and praying for you. Therefore, because God has kept all his promises to Israel and because God is going to keep all his promises to you. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Therefore, what? Therefore, give your body to God. Say, God, what do you want to do? What do you do with my mind? What do you want to do with my soul? What do you want to do with my body? It's all yours. Whatever you want to do, the answer is yes. Therefore, this is your reasonable, it says, uh, New King James says your reasonable service. This uh, New American Standard says your spiritual service of worship. Just, you want to serve the Lord? You want to worship the Lord? Just present your body to the Lord. Okay, God, whatever you say goes. This is it. And do not be conformed, verse 2, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You present your body to God and all of a sudden you're going to realize, I really can't go along with the vast majority of what this world is telling me to go along with. And, and you know what? That's okay. Because you're not supposed to be conformed. You're supposed to be transformed. You're supposed to be a totally different thing. Your life should not make sense to the world. It should, people should really have a hard time comprehending why you do what you do and how you do it. And so he's just saying, present your bodies. And then he goes on and he talks about, okay, as we're, as we're presenting our bodies, there'll be things that God equips us with, things that God calls us to. So chapter, verse six through eight, he says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace that's given us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And he's gonna say, listen guys, God's gonna give us all a variety of different things and ministries and callings and opportunities. So as you have opportunity, let's exercise it. Uh, so if, it's, if your thing is prophecy according to the proportion of your faith, if it's service in his serving or he who teaches in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality or like, you know, with generousness, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You guys are gonna have different opportunities and different callings. Go for it all the way. He's saying, don't hold back. If you're going to lead, you lead. If you're going to give, you give like it's nobody's business. If you're going to show mercy to people, don't show mercy to people because you have to. Show mercy because you're cheerful about it. And then uh, 9 through 13, verses, verse 9 through verse 13, uh, probably are the most complete summary of the faithful Christian walk. And so really, chapter 12 is just, uh, it's one of these chapters that's just boom, 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 boom. And if you're ever in a life situation where you're like, I wonder what the most biblical thing to do would be. Just flip open to Romans 12. Odds are you're going to find an answer. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Guys, if you want to present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord and say, God, here's what I'm going to, I just want to do whatever you want. Here's some good basics. 
Don't be hypocrites. Abhor what is evil. Hang on to what's good. Be devoted to one another. He's saying, these are not like, you know, super abstract concepts. He doesn't say attain enlightenment or, or you know, find your inner light. No. Just be fervent. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. Have hope. Uh, persevere in tribulation. Be devoted to prayer. Pray like it's nobody's business. Okay? Uh, and, and then he's basically going to go on for the rest of the book and just keep spitting these things out. Boom, boom, boom. Because why? We've got the gospel. We've got the power of God. We've got the promises of God to Israel and understanding that he'll be faithful to them and then the promises of God to us. And so uh, chapter 13, he's just, oh, no, nothing to anyone except to love one another. The main thing that should spill out of your life that you should be giving to people is love. Do this, knowing the time, in verse 11 of chapter 13, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Okay? You're closer to heaven right now than you were five minutes ago. That's just kind of, it's a fact. You're five minutes closer to dying or getting taken up by the Lord. You're, you're closer. You are farther down the road, right? The long, slow slide is sliding and you're not going backwards, right? Your time for salvation, it's closer now than it was. So don't waste your time, right? I mean, you guys came here. Most of you showed up around 6.30-ish. It's almost 8.30. That's two hours of your life that you are never, ever going to have back. Now, I hope they've been well spent, but you're never going to have them back, right? And just think about that. You spend your time on something, you're never going to get it back. Elon Musk is going to die somewhere around the age of 70 to 90, right? And he'll have built his rockets and his billions of dollars and his, his cars and all that, but you know what? He's going to have probably about the same amount of time as you. And the fact that he's got you know, $250 billion, and most of us don't, uh, he's not going to be able to spend it for longer. He's got to try and spend it all faster. He's, he's got to panic over what to do with all that money. My goodness. you, you got the same amount of time, so don't waste it. Salvation is, it's coming. And God is, he's coming for you. And uh, therefore, in the end of verse 12, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In chapter 14, he goes on and basically says, look, as you guys serve the Lord, you're going to have different convictions on certain things. And that's okay. If somebody thinks something a little bit different about should you eat pork or should you be a vegetarian or whatever, he's like, who cares? Don't get in a stupid argument. Okay, chapter 14, don't get in stupid arguments as Christians. That's really the whole summary of the chapter. Uh, chapter 15, he kind of carries the thought. Your goal in life is not to make you happy. So if you're at a point of disagreement with somebody, you don't need to really fight for your own rights. And then chapter 16, he gives his whole wrap-up and his benediction and basically says, you know, these are the people I know of in the church. Go ahead and tell them hi for me. Uh, verse 19 of chapter 16, For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. That is a great little exhortation right there. He says, guys, I've heard about you. You're awesome. You're serving the Lord. You're plugging away. My hope for you is that you are wise in the things that are good and that you are innocent in what is evil. It's okay to be clueless about certain things in life. That's not, that's not always a bad thing. And then, uh, just lastly, as he's wrapping up, he says, now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and he, gives, he goes on a little more, he says, basically, to the Lord, to, verse 27, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. 
So we covered the gospel. You're a sinner and God is willing to save you. And if anybody in this room has not accepted that salvation, then you can do it right now, tonight. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now is a great time to get saved because you are closer now to death than you were when we started. Okay? So the gospel, the power plan. You have the power of God in your life if you've accepted Jesus Christ. You have the power to walk in victory. You have an understanding of what? Of, of that, the, the, the synagogue. You have an understanding that God is still faithful to the Jewish people and that because he is still faithful to them, that all these promises that were given in Romans, all these promises of the Holy Spirit, right? And the promises of power, God has kept his promises to the Jewish people. God will keep these promises to us. And then lastly, as a church, what do we do? We present our bodies to the Lord. And, and the summary of all of that, the final verse of Romans is, you know what? To God be all the glory. All of that, all of that should summarize in a life of, I want to give God glory. I don't want to exalt myself. I don't want to do my own thing. I want to li live my life in such a way that Jesus Christ is glorified through it. That's the book of Romans. Paul just sat down, said, I want to bless these people and just kind of unpack the gospel. So we unpacked it uh, roughly. Go back and read it on your own. And, and you know, some por portions you got to read three or four or ten times. Not necessarily because they're impossible to understand, but because he is saying so much and because the grace of God is so all-encompassing. Okay? So go back and read it. Unpack it. Think about what we're saying. Because the gospel is real. The power of God is real. And our lives should be lived in such a way that we seek to bring real glory to the Lord. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel and the good news. And, and Lord, I pray because anybody here or anybody listening online who does not know you, that they would uh, accept you right now and make this their day of salvation. And they would receive your Holy Spirit and your power. I pray that you would fill us up, God, with your Holy Spirit. We want to receive all the promises. We are so thankful that you are praying for us and equipping us and raising us to life. God, help us to go out, go forth for your glory, to, to want to just have lives that are totally and completely surrendered to you. We want to present ourselves. Whatever you say, God, we want our answer to be yes. So have your way with us. Go before us. Equip us, empower us, embolden us, and, have, and just do an amazing work in our lives. All in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.